All right, Isaiah 14 in your Bibles this evening. If you're part of our discipleship program and you need to slip out for that, you're welcome to do that at this time. Everyone else, Isaiah chapter number 14 in your Bibles. We're marching verse by verse through the book. Now, the one uh, thing about uh, my sickness that I'm not quite all the way back is my, my voice. I went two weeks without doing hardly any talking, and I came back to work this week, and I've done quite a bit of talking since I've gotten back, and my voice is not quite stretched out. Uh, so uh, if I sound a little raspy, I feel great, okay? But uh, my voice is not quite back yet. So if you're anticipating me running all over the pool, uh, platform and uh, screaming and hollering the way Carson did a couple of weeks ago, um, by the way, you did a great job, Carson, and really enjoyed your message. Uh, everyone that filled in in my absence did a great job, but uh, really enjoyed Mother Carson's message and uh, the um, way he laid out the passage there in Romans 1 about not being ashamed. But I won't be as animated as, as Carson was, okay? And um, I'll be uh, a little more uh, tame, amen? you got to watch those vision grads. They get a little wild. Um, but uh, we'll be in Isaiah 14. If you found that, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we'll be in verse 12 down through verse number 15 in our opening reading, and then we'll be backing up to verse 1 and working our way here through the, uh, through the chapter. Verse 12 through 15 are some familiar verses if you know your Bible much at all. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down? To the ground which didst weaken the nations, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, I will be like the Most High, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And so I've titled the Bible study this, How Did You Fall? From heaven, when Lucifer was made in in uh, the celestials, he was not ever intended to be cast to earth and create all the uh, the havoc that he's created. Uh, Lucifer was meant to be the worship leader in heaven, and uh, he was meant to be an archangel. And lo and behold, he made some really poor choices that caused him to be thrown out of heaven. And uh, now here we have this great mess on earth. And this is exactly what pride can do. Pride can take you from a position that you enjoy, a position that God made you for, and can cause you to be thrown out of that position and have to deal with the fallout from it. Let's pray this evening. Lord, we pray that you'd help us as we look at uh, Isaiah 14 and we continue looking at the burden of Babylon, the judgment of Babylon. And Lord, help us tonight to see just the dangers of pride. Lord, the truth is pride could be preached on every week for the rest of our lives and we'd wake up the next day after hearing the message and it would still be there confronting us, waiting for us. It would still be a problem within us. Lord, it's something that we must deal with on a moment-by-moment basis even, Lord. And so as we look at it tonight, as we see uh, an extreme example of it, from Scripture. Lord, help us to see less extreme examples of it in our own heart and life. Help us to deal with pride in its subtle stages so we don't have to deal with pride 
when, Lord, when it's uh, uh, tearing our life apart. And so uh, guide us, Lord. Uh, Spirit of God, work within our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we began by looking at Isaiah 13 a handful of weeks ago, and um, we said that we're transitioning into a new part of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 5 through 12 was its own prophecy. Isaiah 13 through about chapter 21 or 22, there are nine countries that had some contact with Israel, whether they geographically bordered Israel or not. They were close enough to Israel to where Israel had some sort of dealings with these countries. And uh, the Bible lays out through Isaiah nine prophetic burdens, burdens. And the word burden there uh, means judgment. Nine different judgments laid out to these nine countries. And we began by looking at Babylon. And we said, interestingly enough about Babylon is that when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, Babylon at that time was just this little city that had no political significance and had no political, real political power. And uh, in fact, they were being held under the thumb of Assyria at the time that this was being written. But lo and behold, Isaiah prophesied that uh, Babylon would become a great country and that Babylon would enslave the the Jews uh, in Judah. And um, uh, to, to people who read that at the time, they must have thought that Isaiah was crazy. How can this little town, uh, who at one time was prominent, rise up again and overthrow as much Assyria uh, and Israel and even bring them into captivity? But not only did Isaiah predict their rise, he predicted their fall. And we see now through the scope of history, looking back, we see that Isaiah was 100% correct that yes, Babylon would rise up some 100 to 150 years after the prophecy was given. They would rise up and they would take Israel into captivity. They would become one of the greatest empires ever, ever to exist in human history. And so that was Isaiah chapter 13. We saw the burden of Babylon. We also saw that there was a double prophecy given in Isaiah 13. And that double prophecy continues in Isaiah 14. In fact, as you read through 13 and 14, and you understand the rise of Nebuchadnezzar and then his son uh, who took, takes over the kingdom, and then you understand the fall that comes by uh, Darius in Persia, and then you also understand the book of Revelation. And in, in 14 through 19 of Revelation about uh, the mystery Babylon and all that goes on there and how one day that's going to be overtaken and that's going to fall. When you understand the prophecy as it's been laid out and you have the scope of history to look back on and you have the book of Revelation to look forward to, sometimes it can be hard to understand. Is Isaiah talking about the Babylon that's already fallen or is Isaiah talking about the Babylon that will one day fall? And sometimes the answer is yes. He's talking about both. And uh, you can see that these prophecies run through both Babylons. The Babylon of yesteryear and the Babylon that is yet to come. And so uh, please understand, again, as we get into chapter 14 here, please understand the time. And you have uh, Israel, Judah, that's under assault from Assyria and even the ten northern tribes of Israel above it. And they're uh, concerned about uh, falling and, and, and becoming captive 
to these countries. And um, Assyria would wipe out Israel and would even take into captivity some of Judah, and but would never overtake Jerusalem. And so when this is written, uh, this is being written about a time where Israel would be in total captivity. And I'm sure the average Israelite that got this, they probably read the writings of, of Isaiah or they heard the sermon of Isaiah and thought, well, that doesn't apply to me. That's way down the road. But lo and behold, here we are. And it is 100% applicable. So let's, ju- applicable. So let's jump in tonight. I've got, I believe, five thoughts Five thoughts out of Isaiah 14, and let's take them one at a time. Let's see how far we get tonight. Number one, notice Israel's restoration. Israel's restoration. Look with me at uh, Isaiah 14. Look at verse 1, and let's read down through verse 3. The Bible says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob, and will yet choose Israel, and set them in their own land. And the strangers shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob, and the people shall take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord for servants and handmaids, and they shall take them captives whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors, and it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord that the day uh, let me back up there. It shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from thy hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve. Now, uh, here uh, uh, Isaiah is talking about a time where after being scattered among the nations and not having their own land, they would be brought back and put in their own country. Has Isaiah 14, 1 through 3, has that Happen, and I would say partially, partially. The Jews, in verse 1, have been allowed back into their own land partially, uh, while not every place where uh, Abraham set his foot has been given back to them. They have somewhat of their own land. They have somewhat of their own government. And they dwell there. Verse 1 talks about them dwelling there amongst strangers. There are people of other uh, beliefs and other religions and other backgrounds, Palestinians and whatnot, who dwell in Israel, who dwell in uh, Judah and um, uh, rather Jerusalem and uh, live there amongst them, but it has not been totally fulfilled. Look back at verse number two here. It says, I have commanded uh, my, rather lift ye up a banner. I'm in the wrong chapter. Okay, chapter 14, verse two. And the people shall take them. That word people there means Gentiles. The Gentiles shall take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord for servants and handmaids. And they, the Israelites, shall take them captives, whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. Now, has there been a day where the Gentiles as a whole have gone and looked at every Jew they could find and say, Hey, let me pay your way. Let me take you and bring you back to your homeland and set you back up in your homeland where you used to live. No, that has not yet totally happened. Now, did did America, who are mostly Gentiles, did they work to set up things in Israel? Um, Yes, America and several other countries were involved with getting Israel situated, but no, not as a whole has it been popular for the Gentiles of the world to find their the Jews of the world and say, let me take you and help you find your way uh, to 
your homeland. Let me help you find your way back to the house of Jacob. When will that happen? That will happen when Jesus sets up his throne in Jerusalem. Let me take, show you a couple of the places here uh, in, in the chapter. First of all, notice letter A, social rest. Social rest or, or political rest. Uh, here we see that the constant bickering and battling that goes on between the Jews and the rest of the world, that will come to a rest. Turn to chapter 49 and verse number 22. And here Isaiah later in the book more clearly articulates this, uh, this idea. Look at chapter 49 and verse 22 and 23. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people, and they, the Gentiles, shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders, and kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down uh, to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet, and uh, thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Now, today, if you were to tell the Gentile world, one day you're going to, to the extremities of these verses, carry the Jews back to their homeland, and you're going to wash their feet, most Gentiles would say, not me, no way, no how. But one day, one day, the Jews will almost, our Gentiles will almost worship the Jews as they take them back. Look at chapter 60 and verse number 10. Just a few pages to the right there from 49. Uh, turn over to chapter 60 and uh, look with me at verse number 10 and 11. We see this articulated yet further. It says, And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and, and that their kings may be brought. One day there's going to be rest in Jerusalem. One day there's going to be a, um, a, a city that's been built back and built back by the Gentile. Gentile uh, masons will rebuild the walls of that city and will put in order the city and will bring the Jews back to their city, back to their country. It will be a Jerusalem-centric, Christ-led world during the millennial reign. Israel's restoration. We see social rest, but notice letter B, spiritual rest. Look with me at verse number 3. Verse number 3 of Isaiah 14. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest, look here, from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from the hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve. I look there at the words sorrow and fear. Sorrow and fear. Um, the Israelites, ever since the fall into captivity into Babylon have had to deal with some sort of oppression from some front, somewhere, in some way. Turn over to Lamentations chapter 1. Here we find Jeremiah. He's made his way back from Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. 
and he's come back to Jerusalem where the city lies in ashes. It is burnt. Uh, the leftovers, if you will, were the remnant, the leftovers were left behind in Jerusalem. And it is a horrible, horrible sight to behold. And in that setting, Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations. And really, this is the beginning of their great sorrow. This is the beginning of their terror and their fear that has continued in some form even to current day. Look at Lamentations 1 and look at verse 1. It says, Jeremiah speaks here, How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces. How is she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night and her tears or on her cheeks, uh, among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The way of Zion, the ways of Zion do mourn because none Come to the solemn feast, all her gates are desolate, her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Um, What kind of rest awaits Israel? There's going to be a day where, yes, they enjoy political rest, and they don't have to worry about scud missiles flying over some wall and landing uh, near where they live. They won't have to worry about uh, constant attacks from the Palestinian world. They won't have to worry with all... And by the way, I'm not here to say that Israel uh, as a nation is innocent in every way. Uh, That's not what I'm here to do. There's no question, though, that going all the way back to uh, Babylon, they have been a persecuted people. And I put together a little timeline here. uh, From that day to current, the Assyrians carried the ten northern tribes among the nations. They were scattered. They've never been regathered, and they won't be until we get to the millennial reign. The Babylonians captured Judah and enslaved them for seven years. And then the Medes and the Persians kept Judah in slavery behind the Babylonian Empire. And then the Greeks took over from the Medes and the Persians, and they kept Judah in slavery. Then the Romans came behind the Greeks, and the Roman Empire was brutal with the Jews, keeping them in slavery. Herod eventually would blow up their temple and, and then burn down Jerusalem, and then there would be a final war, final battle on a hill outside of Jerusalem between the Roman soldiers. Eventually, they would overthrow that revolt and keep them down. Uh, Israel would be um, wiped out as a country, and even the idea of a semblance of a nation in captivity was gone. Again, spread among the nations, and, it, and then the Jews would have to deal with living all over the world and never getting to be their own people, constantly being persecuted from one people group to another until you get to the 1940s and Adolf Hitler, and then we see the massacre of six million Jews in concentration camps in Germany, as again, God's people are, are, are sorrow and fear and terror. Even today, while they may have their own country, they are still under constant assault, and most Jews have not returned to their homeland. One day, one day, not only are they going to experience 
social rest, they're going to experience spiritual rest. Spiritual rest. God is going to have them where they can wake up in the morning and walk out into their front yard and live life and not have to deal with fear or terror. Israel's restoration. Let me just make a quick point of application here because I don't know that we have any Jewish folk in the room uh, this uh, evening. Maybe we have some that have some Jews, Jewish blood in them, but no one who would just label themselves as majority Jew in their heritage. Let me just make a quick point of application. You may be here tonight and you may have grown up living a hard life. You may be going through a hard set of circumstances in your life and you may feel that feel that fear and sorrow and terror seem to await you every corner you come around and you wonder if this relationship's ever going to get better or this problem's ever going to get better. And I'm here to tell you that God is a God of rest. He's a God of rest. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 11, He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. We need to learn that when times are tough, that we go to the Lord and He gives us rest. Now, sometimes there are seasons in our life that are not very restful. Have you ever gone to the Lord in prayer and you walked out from praying and you felt no different than you did when you went in? And you were just as wound up and worried when you walked out as when you walked in. And maybe you're like the psalmist and you cry out to the Lord and you feel like, are you hearing me, Lord? Uh, are, you, are you there? Are you present during my time of trouble? And Lord, are you going to respond? Um, I know sometimes I would say things to my father when I was growing up and I would lay out for him some big problem I was having on the way home from school, and I would get very little, if any, response from him. And I would think, whoo, you there? Or are you just lost in your own thoughts? And um, I would say something else to him, and it was almost as though I was being ignored. And then a couple of hours later, I'd be sitting at the dinner table. And, uh, you know, I've moved on from whatever it was I was talking about, and I've got food in front of me, and I'm just, you know, wholehearted vacuum cleaner. You have to understand something about the Lejeune house. There were nine of us at the dinner table, and so food was a precious commodity. And um, you ate as quick as you could because seconds were first come, first serve. And so, you know, if mom made fried chicken for dinner, she may have made 11 or 12 pieces you needed to get done first if you wanted a shot at that second piece of chicken. And being oldest meant nothing, okay? You had so I'm I'm just wharfing down my food and my dad would say, Hey Richard, you remember that thing you asked me about on the way home from school? Lo and behold, three hours later, he wanted to talk about it, and now he had something he wanted to share with me that was very helpful. Sometimes you go to the Lord with a problem and you feel as though God's not hearing you. You feel as though you're not getting anywhere with heaven. And you lay out your complaint, you lay out your struggle, you lay out your prayer request, and it's almost as though God's not listening to you. And then here comes some answer to that prayer through some avenue sometime later, and you go, you know what, God, I guess you really were listening. He provides that rest for your soul. We see Israel's restoration. Number two, 
Let's notice Babylon's ruin. Babylon's ruin. Uh, let's move on to the next part here. While Israel is going to be restored, Babylon is going to be destroyed. And we saw uh, a few weeks ago when we were in 13 that while Babylon, yes, does describe the city of Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar, it describes a way broader idea of Babylon than just that. You see, Babylon, and this is really important in the Bible study tonight, Babylon does not just describe a city that existed in current day Iran uh, over in the Middle East. Babylon describes the kingdom of Satan and the idea of Satan and the building up of a city uh, that is meant to glorify man and what man can do and who Satan is. You go to the very first Babylon and you find the city of Babel being built right off of the ark. It was as though the people were saying, yes, God, you can destroy the earth with a flood. We'll build back better. And watch us, God. We will build our own city because as collectively as a people, we are greater than you are. And we know the story. God confounds the languages and sends them all over the world. But then you get Babylon here growing up big and uh, taking over uh, Judah, being a tool that God used for his purpose. And then later you get Mystery Babylon in the book of Revelation. And so you have Babel, Babylon, right off of the ark. You have the city of Babylon that persecutes Israel. And then you have Mystery Babylon one day yet to come. And so when we're talking about Babylon's ruin, we're not just talking about the city of Babylon. We're talking about a concept much greater, and this is the rule of man through the leadership of Satan. Let's look at um, uh, a couple of thoughts here. Let me give you an A to B below here. Notice letter A, the proud humbled. The proud humbled. Look at verse 4, and let's read down through verse number 6. The Bible says that thou shalt take up the proverb or the taunting speech, if you will, against the city of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with the continual stroke. For um, he, uh, um, see, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. Go, look down at verse number 9. It says, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. And it raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Uh, all they uh, shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Uh, art thou become like Unto us thy pomp, thy pride, thy pomp is brought down to the grave. And the noise of thy vials, the worm is spread under thee. And the worm covereth thee. You see, the city of Babylon was filled and one day again will be filled with people who were filled with pride. I think in Nebuchadnezzar who walks out on his porch even after having been warned by Daniel not to do so. And what does he do? He walks out on his porch overlooking his massive kingdom. And he must have look with his chest stuck out. Look at this kingdom that I have built. Look what I have done. And you know the story, don't you? 
God struck him down, and for seven years, he acted like an animal in his backyard. And little slave boy Daniel ran the kingdom for seven years. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, said, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look how great I am. And God said, oh no, Nebuchadnezzar. After seven years, he stood up, and Nebuchadnezzar gave credence and said, no, it was the Lord that did this. It's the Lord's kingdom. I'm just simply here to run it in His place. You see, one day, Babylon, mystery Babylon, will be run by people again who are lifted up in their pride. Look at this city that we have built. And by the way, if you don't believe cities can pop up like that, you don't believe that cities, massive cities, can be built in an instant, look no further than China at the many, many cities that have been built, the infrastructure that has been built around them. One day, a Babylon again will be built up, I believe, around the area of Rome, my opinion, and uh, will be much bigger and greater than the old Babylon. It will be the political kingdom of the world where the Antichrist will rule and reign. It will be the spiritual kingdom of the world where the false prophet will lead the world into a one world religion. It will be a it will be the capitalistic monetary financial um, uh, 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 capital of the world where people come in and the money, the merchants that leave and come and even that one day will be destroyed by fire. That city will fall off into the sea and the people will sit at a distance and they will weep and they will mourn. I remember while I was home sick, I watched quite a few documentaries on uh, the events, the tragic events of September 11th. And I guess I was quite a bit more emotional because I was sick, but laying there on my couch watching the World Trade Centers crumble and seeing the people running with ash and soot on their face, seeing the people that jumped from the trade uh, tower and fell to their own demise and their own death. I remember sitting there with tears running down my cheeks just a few days ago and thinking that America lifted up in its pride and, li- and here these towers are being utterly destroyed. Let that be a symbol to you, my friend. Let that be a symbol to me, my friend. We look around at White Oak Baptist Church and this church has been here for 40 one years. Praise God for the 41 years. Some of you have been here for the large majority of it and have watched this church build. Oh, let's never forget that it is not humans that built this church. It was the Lord Jesus Christ that built this church. It is He who deserves the credit. Yes, Barry Brown came here in 1979 and knocked on doors and put in the sweat and the labor uh, in order to get uh, the, the church operational and up and going. But Barry Brown did not found White Oak Baptist Church. Jesus Christ founded White Oak Baptist Church. Barry Brown was the man that God ever so used. Uh, 
uh, Michael Peslak came in here and for 12 years he gave his love and his effort and his care uh, toward the people of this church. He worked to grow it. Many of you, in fact, right over in this section, are here because of Michael Peslak and his efforts to start a bus ministry and get it up. Many of our men in our church and women in our church went out and worked bus routes and worked hard to get people in here and uh, see the church grow. Some of you maybe were led to the Lord because of his ministry, but Michael Peslak was simply a man God used for a season. Richard Lejeune is nothing more than a man God is using for a season. Oh, never let you think that you are the one or that I am the one that gets the credit for anything good that goes on here. It is the Lord's church and He gets all the credit for anything good that takes place through this ministry. Don't you ever look at your kids and think, my kids are growing up and they're wonderful children and uh, I'm, I'm rejoicing in their behavior. You know what? Let me just sit you down and tell you how good of a parent I am. You know? I should write a book on how to be a good parent. You should follow that up with a book about the six most humble people in the world and how you train the other five, right? I mean, uh, let, let's, let's, let's get realistic here. Anything good that happens... The Lord gets the credit. Here you have Babylon, the seat of pride, the concept of pride. And one day, those in the grave will accept those from Babylon who led it and say, Oh, hot shot, you're joining us in hell. Hey, are you so great now that you've left your beautiful city of gold and you joined us down here? Letter B, in Babylon's ruin, we see peace heralded. Peace heralded. Look with me at verse number 7 and 8 of chapter 14. We see here it says, The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. You know what? When people who were wicked cease to rule, cease to throw their weight around and walk all over people, everybody takes a deep breath and says, I'm glad he's gone. I'm glad she's gone. How many of you here have ever had to work for someone who is egotistical? My staff better not raise their hand. Amen? Egotistical, unless you're work, you work for someone else. Narcissistic, just, you know what I'm talking about? Someone who's just, I am the greatest thing this company has ever seen. And if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have a job, you piece of scum on the bottom of my shoe. You know, how many of you ever worked for someone who acted that way, okay? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you know of people who are that way? I worked, I worked a job rolling tires off the end of a truck back in 2013 and 14. I had a stop that I had to go to uh, pretty much every day. It was one of our biggest customers out in East Haven, and I would pull in, and I dreaded going to this place. It was a big, big tire shop, did a lot of uh, corporate uh, big truck type stuff, and I dreaded going into this place because the guy who ran the shop was a hothead, and I mean a hothead. I, I would have to, you know, I'd get there, and I'd roll the tires off, and I'd have to get my paperwork signed, and sometimes that would take a while, and I'd stand there in the area right around the corner from where the boss's office was, and I watched him a dozen times, two dozen times. It's been so long, though, I can't remember. But I'd watch him over and over again, 
he would have his employees pinned up against the wall, his, his veins sticking out of his neck, his finger right in their face, ripping, cussing them out, ripping them to shreds, and he did it to everybody. His wife worked there. I watched him do it to his own wife. Now, I never saw him lay his hands on anybody. One time, um, the order I took, the, the, the company uh, was, uh, had one tire wrong. I didn't load the truck. It wasn't my fault. And he was pretty upset about it. But I just kind of gave him a look. You better not go there with me. The next day, that same tire ended up being wrong again. And, uh, boy, he, he was really getting heated with me. And, and I just told him, I said, buddy, you better back off. And, you know, if you've ever been in a place like that or work for somebody like that, when they leave, everyone just goes, glad he's not around anymore. Glad she's not there anymore. One day, the world will breathe a deep sigh of relief because the rulers of this world that are evil will be gone and King Jesus will rule. And the earth will breathe a sigh of relief. Look at verse 8. It says there, Yea, the fig trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art laid down, no feller is come up against us. Well, we know about the cedars of Lebanon because they were used in the building of the temple. Some of the best wood available uh, for construction uh, work. And the, the cedars of Lebanon were so renowned that they would float them down rivers and move them across channels. And there were people who their one job was to get those cedars from one country, Lebanon, all the way even sometimes across the world. And they had all sorts of uh, ways of doing that. Even the cedars of Lebanon rejoice because these rulers are not there to continue to build up their massive kingdoms. And even the cedars of Lebanon get a rest. Even they rejoice. Even nature itself rests. Why? Because the wicked has fallen. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 22 with me and look at verse number 10. The Bible says, cast out the scorner, and contention shall go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. Proverbs 22.10 Cast out the scorner, and contention shall go out. Um, growing up in the home of a Christian school principal, which my dad was, I watched this verse play out many times. We'd have a child in the uh, in the high school, usually the high school, who is just a, a scorner. Uh, the more base word would be punk. He was just, um, you, and usually it was a boy. Uh, sometimes there would be a girl uh, that would fit this role, but usually it was a boy. And, you know, he knew how to play authority. Yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. But behind the authority's back was creating problems and running parties and uh, uh, introducing alcohol or uh, sleeping with his girlfriend, and in a Christian school, all of these things, because it's Christian life, are a big no-no. And, you know, the, the job of a school principal is to try to catch them in the act to have proof. Because you can know they're doing it, but if you don't have proof, there's only, then you, you really can't move, move on it. And my father would finally get the evidence he needed, and he would cast the scorner out of the school. 
And all of a sudden, the median behavior in the school would get far more righteous. Because the scorner had been cast out, and now reproach and strife have ceased. Have ceased. I've seen people say, Pastor, you know, I think you're a little hard on this person, or maybe a little hard on that person, or this person left the church, and I'm not real happy with the way maybe you handled a situation. And listen, I'm usually far more gracious than the average pastor would be. Sometimes I've got to come down hard on sin, and someone will leave as a result. And the truth is, when the scorner leaves, generally the church gets happier. The church gets better. And I would just say to you, as a parent, learn how to deal with the scorner and don't let your child ever get to that place. We see Babylon's ruin. What's the lesson here? Pride brings about ruin. And that is epitomized in the character of Lucifer. All right, let's move on and look at number three, Lucifer's reduction. Lucifer's reduction. And that brings us back to the passage we began with this evening. And we'll see some parallels here. Now, there is a debate among theologians that Isaiah 14, verse 12, is not talking about Satan. Uh, And the argument is that the word for Lucifer in the Hebrew means bright star. Okay, And that this is talking about the country of Babylon, and it is not talking about the individual of Satan. I don't fall into the category of believing that. I believe that this, while there are some parallels here about Babylon, we'll see in a moment, I believe this is talking directly about the devil. And I'm going to make a case for that uh, here in just a moment. Let me give you an A, B, C, and a D. Notice letter A, his prominence. His prominence. Look at verse number 12. It says there, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst... Weaken the nations. So uh, there's almost a grieving of God that Lucifer was thrown out of heaven. Uh, This idea that God at one point had a great relationship with Lucifer, and it's almost as though God is saying through Isaiah, "How, how did this happen to you? How did you go from your perch in heaven where I made you and put you? How did you go from having everything you had To where now you've been condemned to hell. One day you're going to be looking at the sides of the pit. How could this happen to you, Satan? Almost as though God is heartbroken in saying it. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Let me show you some interesting things about Satan here that we get out of the book of Isaiah, or rather Ezekiel, that give us a better picture of who Lucifer was when he was uh, in um, in heaven. And uh, this paints a beautiful picture of a beautiful angel. Let's read from verse 14. Let's see here. Down, or rather verse 11 down through verse number 17 of Ezekiel chapter 28. I encourage everybody to turn over there. Look at verse 11. The Bible says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation unto the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, By the way, by the way, we get the idea of the leader of Babylon in Isaiah 14, and we get the idea of the king of Tyrus here in Ezekiel 28. Why? Because Satan, watch this now, Satan is the ruler of the political world here on earth. If you ever look around at our politics, 
both in this country and abroad, and you think there are some evil, evil, evil things that happen? Yes, because Satan is the prince and power of the air. And that's why he's identified as the king of um, Tyrus here and the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 because he is the leader of the political world. By the way, Christians, let me, let me just say this to you. Some of you, it's been a long week, a long day. Some of you are tired. Let me just ask you to really dial in here. Don't get caught up in the world of politics. Some of you have, and, and I'm going to take a little bit different angle here, but some of you have CNN and Fox News on constantly, one or the other, MSNBC. But what did I say a few weeks ago? Whether you get your news from a peacock or a fox, okay, uh, whatever that would be. Watch this now. You understand when you watch that stuff, you are watching the kingdom of Satan play out. And if you're spending more time focused on the kingdom of Satan, and I'm talking about the political world, now you need to know what's going on, okay? I'm not saying to just tune it all out. You need to know what's going on enough to be able to vote properly. But that's it. You need to know enough of what's going on so you can pray accordingly. But when we are utterly consumed by it, and we're not consumed with the Word of God and the kingdom of heaven, then, Christian, our focus is misplaced. It's misplaced. And Christians need to get their, their nose out of the news and get their nose in the book and walk with God. And listen, your, your strongest opinions, don't miss this now, your strongest opinions ought to be about the Bible and a biblical worldview, not over some politician and how much you love them and care about them. Because this guy right here, I don't stand lock, stock, and barrel behind anybody politically. I stand behind the Word of God and the truths of the Word of God. And you're to vote accordingly, but you're to be more passionate about the Word of God than you are a set of politics. Okay, I chased a little bit of a rabbit there, but the concept here is that he's labeled as the king of Tyrus, and he's the king of a political uh, world. But this is nonetheless talking about uh, Lucifer, Satan. Look back at verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation unto the king of Tyrus, and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So Satan is labeled as being perfect in beauty. Verse 13. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz, and the diamond. The beryl, the onyx, and the jasper. The sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle. And gold. Look here. This is a description of the body of Lucifer. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and Thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings, and they, that they may behold thee. One day Satan 
will be utterly humiliated. He'll be laid out before the kings of the world. By the way, what's that talking about there? He will not even be given a proper burial. That will come back into play in Isaiah chapter 14 here in just a moment. But he won't even be given a proper burial. What do we learn from Ezekiel chapter 28? We learn that Satan was this beautiful angel. He was created as an angel of light. He had his body made out of precious stones and his respiratory system were musical instruments. Now, I just want to throw this little tidbit in here about Ezekiel 28. Do you understand that Satan, when he walked around, he made music. When he breathed, he made music. Many have used Ezekiel 28 to speculate that he was the song director in heaven. And I believe that's very possible, that God made Lucifer to be the song director in heaven. Now, let me just throw this out there. Lucifer and God obviously had a big falling out. and Lucifer was thrown out of heaven. More about the falling out in a minute. But if you're Lucifer and you're good at music, would you not use the thing you were best at to get back at your arch rival and your arch nemesis? What am I saying? I'm saying I believe that Satan uses music as his, one of his number one tools in his tool bag to trip people up and keep them from God. I believe that Satan uses music to bring, take more people to hell than maybe any other tool in his tool bag. I believe that Satan uses music to even trip up Christians from being as godly as they ought to be. I'm not talking about the lyrics. I'm talking about uh, the, the, uh, the instruments being played that make up the music that the words are put to. Christian, you be careful the music that you listen to. And if that music is driving your flesh, driving your flesh, driving your flesh, then that's music that you shouldn't be associated with. By the way, taking the words that talk about God and putting them with music that drives your flesh, that is what I call oxymoronic music. Oxymoronic music. Oh, over here, we're going to sing about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But over here, this uh, music uh, is going to drive my flesh and get my flesh pulsating and moving. My friend, that is not music that pleases the Lord. You make sure that every aspect of your music from, yes, the melody, and yes, the harmony, but you make sure even the rhythm is not driving your flesh, but the rhythm is just in the background, uh, hidden there. Um, uh, rhythm is part of music, but should not drive or lead the music. It should complement the music. My friend, you be very careful about that. I'm chasing rabbits all over the place tonight. Amen? But uh, we're talking about Lucifer and how God made him and how he revolted against God and was thrown out of heaven. He was an angel of light. He had great prominence. Letter B, notice his presumptions. His presumptions. Go back with me to chapter number, uh, let's see, chapter number 14. And uh, let's look at verses 13 and 14. It says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. Look here at the word I. Look at the self-promotion. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. You notice the emphasis there on I, 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 
I. You know why Babylon is a city filled with pride? Because its leader is Lucifer, and its leader, Lucifer, was thrown out of heaven because of his pride. By the way, as you read through those, I will ascend into heaven, um, I believe there's a double meaning here. I believe that uh, when they came off the ark and they built the Tower of Babel, what were they trying to do? They were trying to, listen, watch this, as they're building that, they were trying to ascend into heaven. They're at Babel. Okay? Uh, they were trying to exalt their throne above the stars of God. You remember they said, we will build into heaven. We will be greater than God. Remember um, uh, when they were trying to build the tower? I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Now, what is the sides of the north? I believe that's a description of the city of Jerusalem. And I said a few weeks back when we were going over 13, that you have the city of Jerusalem in exact contrast to the city of Babylon. In Jerusalem, Jesus is the hero. In Babylon, man and the works of man and Satan is the hero. And I will, Babylon, I will ascend above the city of God. I will be greater than the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. Again, I believe this is talking about Satan as he's trying to elevate himself above God, but I believe it's also Satan driving that in Babel. I will be like the Most High. I will be like the Most High. What was Satan's mistake? Satan's mistake was that he wanted the attention God got. He wanted the glory God got. He wanted the responsibility that God had He wanted to sit in God's throne. Now, you say, Pastor, I would never, ever, ever, ever be so brazen or bold as to ever come out and word it that way. Maybe not, but do you know that every time that you lean on your own understanding, instead of trusting in the Lord with all your heart, you know what you're saying to God? I got this. I can figure this out. You're getting ready to go buy a new car. Did you even stop to pray about what car God would have you buy? I will be like the Most High. Lord, we got this. You say, well, Pastor, does God really care about the kind of car I drive? Yes, He does. Yes, He does. Does God care how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you... Yes, and too many Christians are too busy saying to God, I will be like the Most High. I will be the God of my life. I don't need you, God. Oh, we are presumptuous. Oh, if we're not careful, we're lifted up in our pride and we don't believe we need God. Why do many Christians not pray? Many Christians don't pray because they don't think they need God's help in life. That's what it comes down to. A lack of a prayer life is saying to God, God, I just really don't need you on this one. And may we be people that get back to a life of prayer. Let her see, notice his punishment. His punishment. Look at verse number 15. Let's read through verse number 20. The Bible says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Uh, They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? Speaking of Satan. 
uh, Lucifer, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners, all the kings of the nations, even all of them lie in glory, every one in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave, we saw this in Ezekiel 28 as well, like an abominable branch, and as the, uh, the, the uh, raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit, as a carcass trodden under foot, thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people, the seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. What happens to uh, Lucifer? One day he's going to be destroyed, he's going to be killed, and he won't even be given a proper burial. Uh, what does all of that mean? I'm not certain. I know that at the end of the thousand year reign, fire is dropped out of heaven and uh, destroys the revolt that Lucifer seeks to lead. And apparently Lucifer's body will just be left there uh, once he's uh, killed. And so uh, we, see, uh, we see his punishment. Letter D, and lastly, notice his posse, his posse. And I had to stretch the alliteration a little bit on this one. Look at verse number 21. Speaking of those who, um, uh, who, who uh, stand shoulder to shoulder with him, prepare slaughter for his children for the iniquity uh, of their of their fathers, that uh, they do not rise nor possess the land nor fill the face of the world with cities. For I will rise up against them, saith the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and son and nephew, saith the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the bittern and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the, uh, the besom of destruction, saith the Lord of hosts. What is he talking about when he says uh, the sons and, um, uh, let's see, the sons uh, and nephews and, and, and whatnot. He's talking about all of those who have partnered up with Satan and are part of his rule and reign and his kingdom. All of those who uh, are so connected to Satan that they're looked upon as family, they also one day will be utterly destroyed because they've chosen to follow uh, the prince of darkness. I'm going to give you the uh, number four and five, and I'll let you do the Bible reading and study on your own, okay? And I think once I give you the, uh, the points here, it'll be pretty clear what's going on. Point number four is a serious reminder. In 24 through 27, we've already been told back earlier in Isaiah that Assyria would be destroyed because of their overextension into Jerusalem. Um, and so uh, 24 through 27 is a reminder to Assyria your destruction's coming. Number five, Philistia's rebuke. Rebuke. Now, in um, Assyria's destruction, Assyria had plagued the countries of uh, Philistia. They're going to be excited when Assyria is destroyed. But in essence, what 28 through 32 says is, yes, the head of the snake is cut off, but another one's coming back that's far worse, that's going to rain more terror on you. So don't be quite so excited over Assyria's Destruction. So you can take the time and read those out. What do, we, what do we gather from the Bible study tonight? Here's what I gather from Isaiah 14. Pride is the destroyer that lies within all of us. If your relationships are struggling, if your work life is struggling, uh, if you are struggling in any way, look inward and ask yourself, where am I lifted up in pride? And how is God trying to pull that out of my life? Let's not let pride do to us what it did to Babylon and what will it one day do again to Babylon. Let's not let pride do to us what it did to Lucifer. I don't one day want to be someone who looks back at the good old days of my life and say, 
I'm disqualified from that because I was lifted up in pride. And that's a day-by-day battle. We need to fight that battle. Let's all stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. I'm thankful you were all here tonight, considering everything going on in our church. I feel like we have a good crowd here tonight. Many are still out. Please pray for those that are out, that God will lift them up and heal them and bring them back to us. Amen? Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. Ask God to bless us as we go. Brother Owens, if you would, close us in prayer.